well, what country regulates the internet space? Country Amazon, country Google, you know? And so if they can do that, think about all the people in third world countries that now have cell phones. And what is your ability to now send a message to 4 billion people to get them to do what you want with the information we have when they have just been 10 years behind inundated with this godlike technology and somebody being able to control it. That's Anthony Johnson, attorney, entrepreneur, and disruptor to the legal industry. So I think that's one version of the future. And I think the only other version there is, is to figure out a new world where those people don't have that control. And I think it's inevitable and plan to be part of it. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. In this episode, I sit down with Anthony to talk about what it means to be a disruptor in the legal industry, leveraging data as a competitive advantage, and his vision for how the law firm of tomorrow will operate. I like the idea of lawyers not even touching the technology because let's be honest, they're the ones that fuck it up. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Anthony's unique path into the legal industry began with a degree in computer engineering and earned him the title of America's techiest lawyer. It was like my first or second year, maybe my second year in practice. And it, it goes to show kind of how the industry is too, because what happened was there was somebody submitted at me for this American Bar Association kind of top techiest lawyers in America list. And I think the premise of my submission was something around how we were completely cloud-based. We had cloud phone systems. You know, we were all digital uh, files. We didn't have any, we were a paperless office. And so just like the bar in 2013, maybe 2012, whenever that was, uh, to be one of America's techiest lawyers, it just dawned on me like how relatively low I thought, <laughs> I thought it was. Either that or I just wasn't really, I didn't think I was deserving to be at it at that time. So it's, it's, it's amazing how far we've come since then. Uh, but I guess that a moniker is not a bad brand, I guess, to get early on. When you mention the name Anthony Johnson, you often get a polarizing response from other law firm owners. They either view him as absolutely crazy or absolutely brilliant. I think it's really a two-sided uh, situation where this stems from. And I think it first starts with my background's fairly unique. My dad was a computer guy. He was in the military. Uh, enlisted, but he was in he was in military intelligence, and so I was building computers back when I was a kid, and then uh, went to computer engineering uh, undergrad and uh, did a lot of programming there, and then actually went into finance next, did money management, and then into law school, and kind of during that path also had like an SEO company, digital marketing company, and built custom web applications. So definitely a diverse background, not the typical uh, you know English major to poli sci uh, kind of lawyer that you typically hear of. And then um, I think the other side of the coin is really the industry is people make a lot of money. Um, I think it's one of it, one part of it. So they aren't really incentivized to have to be the cutting edge of technology and adoption. But but I think more than that, it's really the fact that um, we are trained during law school to realize that the things we deal with are 
the most significant problems someone has had in their entire life. And by doing so, it, it really justifyingly says, I should focus on this in spite of the fact that I'm slapping myself in the face when it comes to running a business. And so you have a lot of lawyers and partnerships that are being trial lawyers and getting pulled away from the business and don't have any time to work on the business. And so I think a mixture between that, between ethical regulations, between the uh, the delay and being able to advertise, it just causes this huge laggard in the industry for adopting technology. So so you've got this mix between an industry that's lagging behind, uh, that's a little archaic in the way we practice everything when in adopting technology. And then you have my background that just is, uh, you know, from my parents' perspective was was madness and what I was actually going to do because I kept switching gears. But now I end up using about everything that's in my past. Anthony will be the first to admit that his interests and experiences could have led him down any number of professional paths. He could have leaned heavily into finance or leveraged his skills in computer engineering to innovate in the software space. But ultimately, he chose to pursue law, an unlikely conclusion. I was curious to know what factors pulled him in that direction. It was one of those things where I remember reading a passage out of a book a long time ago, and it was something about, you know, if you're a hunter, if you have a dull knife, you'll never be able to catch that game whenever it comes by your face or across your path. You know, uh, you need to have that skill and you need to work years to hone all the skills you can so that when the opportunity comes or when that game crosses the path, you're able to capitalize on it. So it just kind of was a series of events where it was really no opportunity in front of me. And I spent 10 years just trying to learn and have more skills for when that opportunity came. And I eventually went to law school, actually went to law school because I was in engineering and I, like I said, I didn't like going to class and there was only like two tests. And so the last test I had was like virtual hardware dynamic circuits or some, some shit like that. And, uh, I went to the, I ended up, I played guitar on Dixon street and I didn't, didn't wake up for the test. And so if you miss one or two tests, you fail. And I went up to the guy and I'm like, man, I was like, I'm not even going to be an engineer. And he was like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm just making this up as I go along. And I was like, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to law school. So I don't even need any of this stuff. And he goes, show me your LSAT score and I'll give you a B. And I was like, shit. All right. So I ran out, signed up for an LSAT, took it and then decided not to go. And so whenever that was about to expire, I was in Little Rock, didn't really have any options. And I thought, well, financial advising, and maybe they trust me more. I'm a young kid if I had a law degree. And uh, so I applied to the local law school, which is kind of a second tier law school. And uh, they ended up giving me a full ride. And that's how, I, that's how I ended up with a law license. From the start, it was clear to Anthony that he was not going to be running a traditional law firm. He was fresh out of law school during one of the most difficult periods in the history of the American economy. And while Anthony had limited options, he did have a unique technical background. His solution? to start operating his law firm like a software company. I graduated law school in 2010. And when I got out, there was, I mean, maybe one person out of the hundred, of the 300 lawyers in Arkansas had a job at a big firm that year because the housing crisis just hit, no one was hiring. And so I was like, well, I know how to build websites. I've just spent the last two years building every personal injury guy's website in my state just from scratch from a, you know, me and two other guys hacking on a computer. And so I got out and I was like, well, I, you know, I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things. I've been very diverse and kind of a little bit of a, uh, a quagmire in my history. And what I was like, and so I bought in a little bit of the Kool-Aid at law school. And I said, you know, I really like this. I, I want to figure it out and become, you know, less of a jack of all trades and master of none and actually get some depth of understanding in this industry. And so I said, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so I couldn't get a job. And so I said, all right, you know what? 
Google Places just came out. I can build a website. I did some stuff to hack on Google Places. And like three days later, I was number one in Google, which is what I thought I wanted to do was like business litigation and business consulting, uh, business law, uh, work with startups. And so it was like my firm, which was literally me in a closet. And then like every top litigating firm in Arkansas underneath me. And so I started getting a lot of phone calls and I just realized I don't know how to like take a letter to the court, you know, like who to give it to. I mean, I'm talking like bare basics. They don't teach you in law school. Like which side of the courtroom do you sit on? You know, like, when do you talk? And so, so my thought was, all right, well, I'll figure this out and I'll go. And every time I get a good case, I'll go ask who's the best lawyer in this commercial litigation, construction litigation or whatever. And I'll say, Hey man, I got a client teach me how to do it. I want to know how to learn from the best. And that's kind of what led me down this path of working with other attorneys, uh, trying to accelerate my learning curve. I think I was in court, uh, mostly bench trials, probably more than most lawyers ever do their first year because I had cases. I was probably in the courtroom 20, 30, 40 times. I don't know, my first six to eight months in practice. So so I definitely uh, learned by fire. And uh, that's kind of how I, I ended up getting in the industry. Anthony got into law without knowing how a traditional law firm operated. And as a result, developed his own methodology. I think I have a hard time uh, really reflecting on like the vulnerability aspect of things. I've realized lately I'm very self-sufficient and, you know, just kind of suck it up and get it done kind of personality, the kind of GST. I think I have, some of my first employees made me a shirt that said, get shit done, because that was kind of just my philosophy. Like, just just do it, you know, quit crying, um, kind of bootstrapping things. And so whenever I got a client, though, it was a little different because I realized this is a huge deal. Like this guy has $700 to his name. This is important to him, even if it's small. And I'm the best he can get. And so I would sit there and I would struggle with this idea. And I also don't like being bad at things, you know, more competitive than about anybody. And so I struggle with this concept. And it was it was kind of this this dichotomy of I know I'm the best. I can be the best. I'll try harder and make it up. And the other side of the coin being I really am not the best. <laughs> I don't know shit about how to do even lawyering, let alone this guy's case. But I'm the best he's got. And so that drove me to say well, how can I still help this guy? How can I learn? But how can I also get him the best representation in the world that I can think of for this money? And so that drove me to go look for anybody that I thought was the best lawyer out there that would teach me how to do this and give that guy the level of competency of an experienced lawyer at the same time, allow me to learn, uh, not cost a client anything more. So it was a, uh, in the end, a little bit of an altruistic driving force, you know, trying to trying to really help the greater good, um, and find a win-win for everybody. Fast forward to today, and Anthony's law firm has gained a great deal of notoriety, both locally in Arkansas and on a national scale. If you follow the firm on social media, you'll see that their office looks more like a hedge fund trading desk than a traditional law firm. It's filled with countless monitors, displaying data, analytics, and more. I wanted to know what a day in the life of Anthony Johnson looks like these days. I have... Recently, you know, really intentionally tried to focus my energy on the things that are more strategic in the company. Um, and I've done that by trying to architect a new way of working within the company to where I'm not needed to be the, the bottleneck or the buffer or the conduit between lateral departments. So when I'm talking about marketing, I don't need to be the one that only knows marketing. And then I also know the technology and also know the data and also know the law. So if I'm the only one that knows all four of those, it's me bottlenecking every single decision anytime they need to have lateral, lateral conversations. And so we've really done a good job of, of changing our model of how we execute work uh, completely on its head to, to get me out of that role. And so now um, I'm able to 
really creates space, I think, for doing a lot more strategic thinking when it comes to which way is a company going as if we were trying to reroute the flow of kind of the river? You know, where is it going to be in a year? Where is it going to be in five years? And what are the business reasons and business goals of making the decisions that we do? So that, you know, that may come in the legal sense of uh, which litigations we're going to get into, what, uh, you know, how early stage or certain litigations versus late stage, uh, what are our different profit verticals when it comes to motor vehicle accidents, single event, product liability, mass tort. And what, you know, the political environment. So all these things are kind of strategic, outward facing business reasons why you make decisions. And if you're so encompassed and engulfed with looking inward and how things are operating or needing to be the bottleneck between departments, you don't have time to create that space to make those decisions intentionally. Anthony's business sensibilities and data-driven approach have helped him grow his law firm with great success. But one of the biggest ways he sets himself apart is his big picture vision. Anthony has a deep understanding of something every firm in the country is trying to leverage today, data. We do have these prehistoric emotions that, that stem from the days of the caveman. You know, we have this anger and fear and, and love and all these, these, these feelings that last forever. And then we have these kind of empirical systems on how people operate, organizations are structured in business. Uh, it's very centralized, very top-down, kind of like the org chart of a normal company. And then we have this kind of godlike technology and data that, that has been recently dumped in the world because we just got to where we have the internet in the palm of our hands. We just got to where, I mean, it was, you know, 20 years ago that this didn't exist. It's just fascinating that we went from not having email maybe 25 years ago to now thinking all information is accessible and there. And so the root of all this information is really how data was enabled to be shared through kind of the infrastructure and the internet. And then now it's getting into where, how can we structure the data and understand this nuanced data? Because now we're starting to collect your movements and your, your comments in social media. And so the understanding of this data is actually coming to clarity, whereas a lot of people still call it chaos. And so in our industry, we talk about, you know, oh, everything causes cancer. So you hear all this kind of... Uh, this lack of understanding is, oh, there's all this misinformation, there's this fake news, everything going on. And then they say, well, it's, it's so it's just chaotic. It doesn't, you know, everyone's just saying what they want to say because they're self-interested. But in reality, there are definitely players that do understand it. They may be hiding behind that, that chaotic understanding of data, but they actually understand it at that very macro level. You look at pharmaceutical companies, you look at big data companies, they understand that world. And so our challenge as an industry and as a world, I would say, is to figure out how we can understand data on the same level, level like leveling the playing field. And so with the legal industry, right now it's very fragmented. All the technology is different. Every lawyer has a different CRM and a different way of doing it. And so we've really broken down what are these pieces of data at their core? Like not what's the jurisdiction or not who's the co-counsel, but is this a, a role relationship with the case, you know, from a database perspective? And is that role a person or is it a group of people or is it an entity? Because it's all the same thing, you know, in the end. And so how can you structure this framework that could potentially be the framework that ties in every other platform in the industry? So if we can standardize this framework, we can essentially be the Tower of Babel of the industry. And if we can connect our industry and create some kind of solidarity, that actually matched what the defense and the insurance companies have with Colossus and those, those mechanisms, then we would actually have a level playing field because we would have the crowdsource kind of army of consumers and individuals and the lawyers behind them working together in tandem uh, to fight the insurance companies that are doing the same thing already. How do you balance that then? Because you know, 
you claim you're one of the more competitive people. And I know for a fact that you are. I mean, it's competition in everything. I mean, I see you guys doing competition in like ping pong, competition in business. I mean, in literally anything that can be made, like if there's a scoreboard, I think that you're looking to be at the top of that scoreboard. But how do you balance competition and solidarity? I think that with our industry, it's easy. I mean, we are an adversarial industry. It's defense versus plaintiffs. It's corporations versus people. It's people versus profits. It's, you know, it is a two-sided battle. It is the the big machine that's trying to manipulate us and do things to us. And it is the the people that are caring for each other and the, the community and the tribe. And I think we live in a culture now where this this idea of countries has been kind of interesting to me lately because we're no longer bound by borders and laws because we have the internet. So like now it's there's a lot of fluidity and there's a lot of, uh, enablement for people that believe in the same thing, whether it's data privacy or fighting corporate greed or whatever it is, if you enable them with a mission and a vision, and then you enable them to communicate, you can drive that movement and that community can be as big as it needs to be. And so I don't look at other lawyers as my competition. I think of, uh, you know, people that are, that are, that are large, that are trying to do things cutting edge, maybe a rival, you know, at the time, but it's not like if I beat him, I win, you know, I'm not trying to beat him. I'm trying to beat him to the same goal. You know, if he encourages me to get there, I encourage he to get there too, because we're going at the same thing. I mean, I'm going to get there first, but it's not necessarily uh, once I beat him, I'm done doing what I'm doing. We can look at the evolution of artificial intelligence, AI, as a parallel. Take Tesla, for example. By leveraging a large and evolving data set from their vehicles on the road, Tesla is able to improve their self-driving capabilities, making significant strides that keep them on the cutting edge. In theory, Having a big pool of shared data would allow law firms to operate more efficiently and effectively than ever before. But in order to get there, Anthony believes that there are some fundamental data concepts that firms need to understand first. It's interesting. Recently, uh, maybe six months ago, I had a conversation with a guy that was very early at Facebook and like, you know, helped with, you know, understood the algorithm and actually was taught it and all that kind of stuff. And we were talking about uh, data from the standpoint of quantity. The first thing he told me was he goes, you have no data. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, Facebook has all the data. So like, when you step back and think about that, it's like quantity is really not the key when it comes to data. It is because what happens is if you think that you're collecting enough data to be useful versus somebody like Facebook or Google that actually has that data, uh, you actually have zero. And so then you kind of target, you kind of interact with the data differently. It's like, okay, how can I give indications to that larger set of data that actually lets them use their own data better? So it's a little bit of, it's a nuanced distinction, but it, but it really flips the coin on the head when it comes to how much data we have. So I look at quantity of data from a throughput perspective for testing. So a lot of lawyers have a lot of data. All of them don't know Dick what to do with it. <laughs> they, they don't know how to like, they, yeah, I've got all the, I got 50,000 records of clients from the past or whatever. Okay, cool. Run me a report on 27 year olds that were smokers uh, that you settled or referred out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Like that's not even that hard, <laughs> but I guarantee they couldn't do it. So it's the fact that they had a quantity of data is not that helpful. It's the fact whenever you have a quantity of data, your ability to architect understanding and to structure data and to structure information in a way that you can test that feedback loop. So you throw the information through it, you see if you're right or not, you kind of incrementally iterate proving out this architecture. And so that's what quantity is for, because once you have that, the data is out on the internet, whether it's, you know, it's Facebook or Google or whatever. And once you have this machine that could digest data, and that's kind of what's changing right now in the market. Once you can digest the data, your understanding is exponential because all the data lives on the internet. It's not that hard to get. 
So that's kind of how I approach it. It's about really architecting this fundamental understanding of how data works and how we can use the information we're getting at a certain bandwidth in order to iterate that feedback loop, improve it, and then try to get to some curated kind of stress test version of what data should look like in an industry and then convince everybody else to use it, which is actually the easy part. Whenever there's a conversation about data, it often leads to a discussion on data privacy. However, Anthony believes most ignore the larger issue at hand. The way I look at it, it's not really a problem with data privacy. It's the problem with data ownership, I believe. So the thing is, is that I look at data that it's either private, you know, it's something that I have and that I understand and I own or I control, or it's public and it's out in the public sphere and no one else should really own it. And so it's about the ownership of data, which does have an effect on privacy, because if you get these centralized uh, hubs of people that own data, whether it's it used to be the government, but really they're not even the big power anymore. Now they're actually borrowing the data from Google and Facebook, you know, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. But if you have these small number of entities that control these hubs of data in a centralized way, because that's actually, you know, whether it's Amazon Cloud or Azure or whatever, they're actually the ones holding the data and controlling the flow of information, then it's really in the power of their hands to, to make the rules of how that, that data is delivered to the world. The problem is when you have a person owning that centralized database, they don't really have the incentive to be the police. You know, like those guys are advertising. They are, it's almost like putting your hands in and making that decision, like from like a godlike stance of the, the infrastructure to say, that's not allowed, this is allowed. And so the way I look at it is that the only way, there's no way to play the rules of that game, the centralized game. There's no way to beat Facebook at being the best social media company or the most used one. It's just too late. They're too big. And so the only way to disrupt that industry is to kind of change the rules. And the only way to change centralized database and the ownership of data and the way it's structured today is to figure out a way to start siphoning that data into a new world, whether it's decentralized or, or quantum database or something like that, to where it can build on itself. So that's kind of the only way to truly regulate something as large as the internet is to get everyone access to it in the same way and let it curate itself and self-organize. That being said, regardless of how it innovates, I think that there is an absolute version of the future for me that it goes one or two ways, that either the centralized people win and there's a handful of people that essentially can create tyranny over the world and and, and control the masses because you got Tesla launching 40,000 satellites right now. You've got all these companies uh, that are going to control the internet in space. Well, what country regulates the internet in space? Country Amazon, country Google. You know, and so if they can do that, think about all the people in third world countries that now have cell phones and what is your ability to now send a message to 4 billion people to get them to do what you want with the information we have when they have just been 10 years behind inundated with this godlike technology and somebody being able to control it. So I think that's one version of the future. And I think the only other version there is, is to figure out a new world where those people don't have that control. And there is this distributed power and this way to kind of self-organize and crowdsource the kind of the new way to hold data. And I think it's inevitable and plan to be part of it. Anthony and I spoke at length about quantitative metrics and how being data-driven is a tremendous competitive advantage for law firm owners. However, interestingly enough, in recent years, Anthony has invested heavily into his firm's brand and brand marketing, something that's almost impossible to directly measure. I wanted to know how his perspective had evolved over the years of running his law firm and what he's doing differently now versus when he first started out. Yeah, so it's interesting It's because I started down the path of being very micro on quantitative measures. Um, and that's how the, the digital marketing movement started. You know, we were able to track every click and every call and all this stuff. 
But over the past, you know, two or three years, you know, in understanding this more and starting to move up the funnel and starting to understand kind of the effect of brand, you realize there's a lot of information out there that says most people, you know, um, touch the brand on four different platforms before they actually connect. They might see you on mobile, they might see a billboard, they might see you on social or video. So people went from this ROAS metric, which is return on ad spend with digital marketing, where you tie Facebook spend to profit or uh, Google spend to certain return on ad spend to going almost backwards and flipping it again to return on uh, like ROI, uh, which is almost more of a macro metric from like a finance perspective. It's like you deploy this capital on this strategy. You might have allocations for brand um, for kind of a cross pollination top of funnel that may not be specifically linked to conversion, but gives you lift on the whole company. And so once you start operating at a level where where you have enough of this uh, underlying traffic and foundational audience to to impact that with brand, it, it, you can't really measure incrementally or at least quantitatively the direct impact of brand on every single lead you have. But if you look at it from a more macro perspective, you almost have to step back, which is weird for me to say. And you have to look at when I spend this more money on that brand. You know, you you see what you did compared to everything else you did, and you see the lift throughout the whole company, and you have to really look at that metric from more of a, you know, qualitative and uh, more macro perspective. So this is really interesting to me because, it, it, as you and I know, I mean, we, it, you're both in uh, in the legal groups that we're a part of, and you see some of the most successful firms in the nation, and there's oftentimes a correlation between they're they're also very heavily investing in their brand and, and whatever that is, whether it's in more traditional mediums like TV and billboard, or in you know digital like online, social, PPC, SEO, you know whatever it might be. But there's always a very heavy brand investment, and yet it's oftentimes one of the least trackable things you can do. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm in this mastermind group that's pretty great that a guy runs. Uh, his name is Michael. Uh, but but so I was in there and it was a day where we focused on what's the best kind of marketing tactic. And of course, you know, I was like, well, I do a lot of this stuff. I was like, I felt like it wouldn't be that fascinating or novel at least. But what I realized was almost everybody's best tactic in the room was some type of brand play. And it, a lot of it wasn't even to do with legal. It was one of those things where... Uh, it was a you know community hometown hero campaign or something to where they they really got that that feelings connection with their audience, and then once I dug down more into like talking to the very successful, uh, especially personal injury law firms, I realized that a lot of the direct to consumer marketing, a lot of the digital marketing that's just more like leads based or whatever, maybe drives quantity. So it builds your audience, but it really just kind of pays the bills. Most of the time, it's lower injury cases. It's uh, it's uh, there's less of a kind of emotional stickiness to your client. And so what I what I dug into finally after a while is realizing that most people that are very successful, they basically ba- barely pay the bills maybe with their, their direct-to-consumer marketing, but their brand marketing causes their second-generation cases, causes their, their referral centers, it causes uh, evangelists of your tribe, of your brand, and of your firm. And that is where they have exponential growth when it comes to profitability. So... This is definitely a two-part component, and if you want to have success and profitability, if you don't have brand, you kind of lose that entire thing. There comes a point in every entrepreneur's journey when he or she realizes that alone they can go fast, but in order to go far, they must do so with an aligned team. When Anthony started expanding his team, he discovered another area of scaling his firm that didn't fit nicely into a quantitative box. People. I was interested in how Anthony's approach to leading his growing team was impacted by the nuances and complexities of the human equation. When we hit that critical mass where it became very apparent that you just can't change the world by yourself and you start hiring and we went from eight to 40 some people here and, you know, 
almost 70, 80 people at our call center, all in the course of maybe 18 months, you start hiring new people. And I think I maybe even exaggerated the problem with how fast we grew, but you start seeing these dynamics form of like, okay, we do reviews. And I would start, I would think people were all motivated by me. And I'd be like, okay, let's just give people more money or let's, um, let's give them very strict KPIs. And if they perform and they meet them, that that'll, that'll push them to kind of gamify it. And they're probably competitive. And then you realize it just doesn't work. Like somebody isn't happy with every model. And so it really forced me to kind of pause and dig into, well, what is the issue? And I think the issue is, like you said, it's, it's, there's this human equation that is going on in the world. And when you have more and more people, you start realizing that everyone has nuanced and what motivates them and why they do things and, and uh, their purpose in life. And the only way to overcome these individualized motivations is to create some kind of vision or purpose that is bigger than yourself. And that's what somebody like Apple did so well was when they were all selling uh, ports and parts or whatever they called it, uh, devices when the Macintosh came out and they came out with that brand campaign that, that said nothing about computers, didn't have a single technology in it. And they started with why, which was they wanted to be the disruptors and the crazy ones and they wanted to change the status quo and they put Gandhi on the video and that kind of thing. And, and that created this culture of we're doing something to change the world and touch billions of people. So, I mean, I always relate it to church. So I say, it's kind of interesting. You think about one of the best remote workforces in the world. You think about like the, uh, like the Baptist church, you know, everyone meets on Sunday, everyone has the same procedures, you know, there's no form of slack or communication, but somehow they managed to all put something, the epitome of something bigger than yourself being religion or, or God or spirituality. And they've all decided to do that. And in that regard, when you can put that first, it really, levels that's the ability for people to move together. So, so this is interesting because it, it seems like when you're looking at alignment, there's vision, of course, but then there's also the dynamic of, of culture. And I know that you guys dialed in on this quite heavily, just with, with your unique culture at the firm. But I guess talk me through that in terms of like how that evolved and then also the impact that you've seen, almost like the before and after. We went down this path when, uh, you know, we were kind of thinking about partnering up together, me and my partner. And, uh, we were wanting to make sure that we had alignment individually. And so we really started talking about what is the, what you call like the infinite objective? Like what is that unachievable just cause that, that what is the reason why you get up every day and you want to work and you would get up excited? Uh, you know, how are you going to change the world essentially? And that is the framework to kind of understanding what we do as a company. Cause we started there and I think there was this nervousness of, Oh, that sounds like we don't care about the law because we're talking about something bigger, but it's not really, it's really saying this is who we are at our core. You know, this is what drives us. And then we say, okay, we're doing what we're doing in the law. And this is where I go back to saying we just sell books is that that core model and that core motivator can be applied to these pillars, which are marketing or technology or data or lawsuits or whatever it is. And uh, that's kind of how we started. And then when we started talking about the company, we really made this distinction of like if the company vision was, uh, I said like an image. And I always like the image of the guy, you know, like with his hand up in the air, pulling, you know, fist pumping to the sky, kind of that that uh, empowerment imagery, that's kind of the vision to the world. And I said that the culture within the company is still that image, but it's the fact that he has like a bandana in his back pocket. You know, that that culture knows that he's the type of guy that he he brings a bandana to the vacation because he knows he might need it. You know, it's not like a face tattoo because that's too far. You know, you can't tattoo your face and still be in business, but you still have that bandana. So where whenever you need to ride, you can pull it out your pocket and put it on and you're kind of, you're in that that squad that ride or die with you. And so that's the distinction for me is the vision is what the outside world sees and the guy you know, putting his fist to the air and the culture is the guy that is the internal company that actually understands in his back pocket is that headband and what it actually means to have it. 
So it's fascinating because when, when you, you guys took this approach and with your culture, which is clearly not for everyone, but that actually started to attract a very specific type of person that perhaps a traditional law firm may never be able to attract. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We have a very young uh, staff. You know, we have a lot of people that are under 30. I'm probably one of the oldest people. I'm 37. And it's amazing because a lot of people, it, this is fascinating too, at one of our vision uh, workshops where people were talking about the number one word mentioned was uh, where you're talking about a problem at the firm or struggle was hiring. And I used to kind of think I used to think that way too. Be, but then I've realized lately is really more of a reflection on my ability to empower people because now we have all these people and we've reshaped kind of how we look at people and how we try to enable them and how we try to make them accountable to themselves and have ownership in what they do. Um, and we've done a lot of work to facilitate this. So it's not just like saying it and, you know, and finding people that naturally do it. It's actually architecting the way you operate in a way that allows them to, to gain those attributes regardless of their personality. And I think by doing so, we have, we have a epic level of uh, quality of people and that's across the board. And it's not because we got lucky and we just picked the 40 people that were great. I mean, you know, this, your people are, are incredible. You have a great culture, you have great people. And it wasn't because you're just so good at like interviewing that you were like, oh, yeah, you're going to be good. You know, we all say this is so important to focus on people and understand people. And I said, well, who's going to spend a thousand hours learning about how to empower people and how to understand people this year? Because I'm pretty sure I've spent that last quarter just trying to figure this stuff out. And I think we'll have to continue to do that. The other thing we talk about a lot is if somebody is terrible, is not a good fit, not a cultural fit, they're an energy, energy vampire, as we call them, if they're just sucking the life out of the room every time, just get rid of them. I mean, it's it's America. It's not like they're going to go hungry. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity right now. It's tough with the pandemic. I get it. But it's they don't want to be here. And the way I look at it is I don't want you to waste more of your life doing something that you don't like and that you, you know doesn't fit in. And, and it just kind of brings down everyone around you. I want them to whether it hurts immediately or not, it makes them uncomfortable. It's not going to injure them forever. They're going to use that for the opportunity to go find something they're passionate about. All that goes goes down to really curating that that vision the why of the company and which is still something we're working on so don't ask me what ours is yet uh because <laughs> I, I we really want to be our you know uh conscientious of how we deliver that when it's ready but it's getting that down to something that is adaptable and it's really turning words into a feeling and a feeling is adoptable you know you understand i'm sad you can be sad we can adopt that feeling so if your vision becomes a feeling it's something that people can resonate with and they don't have to have their own change the world why but they, they feel you, and they feel that vision, and they can get behind it and support it. For many law firms, culture manifests itself along the way. It's kind of a byproduct, by default rather than by design. But it's clear that there's a great degree of intentionality behind Anthony's vision, ethos, and core values. We've done this poorly many, many times. So it's, it's one of those things where even in our core value journey, uh, realize where we were doing it for ourselves as people trying to get together as a partnership to try to find alignment. So we dug very specifically in what do we mean by these core values? And we we broke them down. And I remember when we first delivered them, we said, hey, these are kind of rough drafts of like our brain. Like we want our, our leaders to understand these. It really wasn't received that way. It was more of a, these are ultimatums. These are things I have to do. And I've got to be a zealot for these core values. And we were like, that's not what we intended. So, so a lot of this is like iterative understanding and trying to facilitate this feedback. And so we heard that we get it. And we were like, yeah. These, and so we're now circling back and saying, all right, how do we create this culture of this acceptance and adoptions of these core values? How do we get them involved? Do we get them to read some books with us, start some discussions, get their feedback? Cause we're going to learn from it too. Now in the end, when we reshape those core values into these very simple, call them 
feelings versions, you know, writing out feelings with words is what essential they are. I know like I've read like million core values, but I always like to like always be hustling was what Ubers gets a lot of shit for because although I, I criticize the fact that they get shit for it because they grew exponentially and it was, it was, it was huge, but they, they claimed the always be hustling culture became a little, uh, kind of poisonous because they were too hustling whenever they started digging into profiles and, you know, complaints about what was going on. And so that kind of came back to bite them. So you got to be careful, but, but there is this, this way to deliver a core value and get the understanding and reaction without having to say all the words. And I think that's the path to get there. And you got to have people get part of that process or else it doesn't become part of your culture. We are in one of the most transformative periods in history. And it's inevitable that law firms like nearly all businesses will have to ride the wave of change. Anthony is all about innovation, so I wanted his take on what the legal industry will look like 25 years from now. There's a lot of interest in the technology part of legal because we're behind. You've got a lot of productization of the market. You've got a lot of you know people trying to build standardization in the data and the technology. What I can see in the future happening is as that becomes standardized, there becomes this kind of shared use of data, whether or not they actually share the actual data between firms, but this ability to go and centralize this data, maybe a non-identifiable way that empowers the industry. And then I like the idea of lawyers not even touching the technology because let's be honest, they're the ones that fuck it up. So if there's a way to almost take this, uh, how do you work up a case? How do you intake? How do you get your mail? How do you do sales and marketing? All that stuff is business stuff that lawyers, it's not really lawyer work. We've been talking lately about People talk about attorney work and associate work and partner work and paralegal work. But we were like, what is it actually broken down to his core? It's work that an attorney has to do. Not that he wants to, but that he absolutely has to because of his law bar card or, you know, he has to sign the complaint. He has to, you know, he should probably check this well, whatever it is. But does he have to make that intro call? He doesn't have to. You know, he wants to and you think it works, but he's, it's not work attorney has to do. And so that work will always remain the same. And I think that attorney work is what makes them valuable and where the value shift will happen. The rest of the work is just work. A lot of it is is making calls or sending a letter or automating a form. And as that technology allows us to standardize and automate that, I think it could allow us to almost take that out of the business of law and lawyers become more advocates and more valued for their thoughts and their effect and less about moving information around and cracking the whip on paralegals and running a sweatshop. There's often a debate in the legal industry about whether it's possible for attorneys to focus on both the business of law while also being great litigators in the courtroom. Some believe that it's possible to do both, while others believe that at some point you have to make a choice. This was a topic that Anthony felt quite strongly about. As this industry changes um, and as we become more accountable to operating businesses and to being more efficient and effective, are you going to survive if you do both? Probably you can. Plenty of people are doing it. As this industry takes shape and takes form and technology starts really enabling it to uh, hold each other accountable, it's kind of one of my themes this year is how can we hold the industry accountable to the claims they're making on being the best or settling the most cases, getting the values. And it's, you know, it's all kind of bullshit right now because they say it because there's no accountability. But I think that's going to change. It's a lot like a lot of corporations, I think. Uh, you know, we've talked about this before that most wildly successful game-changing corporations have have this dichotomy where you have uh, somebody that focuses on kind of the future, they're outward facing, and then you almost have this equal and opposite gravitational force that's looking downward and inward. So you can't both look towards the future and disruption and innovation and also have the time to turn around and effectuate it and make sure it runs perfectly and, and, and amazingly. So you can't be that trial lawyer that's focused on being great at that 
And at the same time, keep your eye on the strategic movements of the company, where it's going. You know, what are we doing strategically to, to, to hire and to enable and to train and to do all these things that are going to make us a better firm? There's just no way to do them both well. What's interesting is one could argue that this was the di- dynamic that Apple had uh, when you had Steve Jobs, the innovator, and then Tim Cook, the operator. It was probably arguably probably the most innovative time in the history of Apple. I mean, this is where, right when the iPhone came out and the iPad came out and all these innovative products that were that, again, year over year, were making such greater progress than they do today. And while Apple is still you know, a very valuable company, they've even gone up in value. The the skepticism or even the criticism they get at times is on the lack of innovation ever since Steve gone. Do, do you do you find any truth to that, or do you think people are just saying that because Steve's no longer in the room? I think that is right. Currently, I think Tim Cook was a good uh, good decision because he has that appreciation and value of the vision centric company and culture, and so. As a leader, you know, you understand kind of how to run one inwardly and you have that huge disruptor. You're not going to find a replacement for Steve Jobs. So what they needed was someone that understand that value was is going to be a gap and that they needed to fill it with their culture internally. I think you're right when you don't have the guy at the top really driving change because there's a lot there's going to be a decision. If you are truly a kind of infinite minded vision centric leader, there's going to be a decision that loses you money short term in the finite. But it's because it's in pursuit of a greater vision. And I think that's what happened when Steve Jobs got fired, you know, is that he got done with the Mac 2 and he started trying to push to something akin to maybe a cell phone or whatever it was. And they said, no, just work on the Mac 2. Well, because the Mac 2 was going to make them more money. The stocks were going to go up and the board members going to make a lot of money. But that's a finite objective. But in reality, he thought if our goal, if our vision is really to move the human race forward through t- disruption and technology and, and enabling people with with innovation, we did that. The computer's here. Like we're going to we need to pour money into pursuing that 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 thing. And I think that's that's been tried and true over the course of time. It's tough to shift after a vision leader like that leaves, especially with that a guy that that uh, magnitude. I mean, you look at like Kodak. Kodak was ran close to 80 years where they were the leader. And then ironically, they were the ones that invented the digital camera. But they were making so much money on film and printing and paper and traditional photography that they sat on that. They lost the side of their vision because that guy had passed away. And uh, they literally invented the future that was going to put them out of business. As an ambitious leader, Anthony is naturally full of ideas that take his practice to new heights. But being in the driver's seat of your business sometimes means weighing decisions in a different way. Anthony broke down his decision-making process and how he's been able to dial in on where to direct his firm's time, talent, and resources to move forward pragmatically while still leaving time for innovation. We have so much stuff going on, you know, with all these different companies and business and growth. And so we finally, we've hired a couple consultants, you know, some good, some bad. <laughs> and we kind of got to this place that we were like, okay, how do we take our, the execution of our work? And then how do we re- flip it on its head and say, okay, strategically, what do we want to do as a company this year? And so really, we, we ended up bucketing it. I remember the first time I tried, we had like 20 different goals that I wanted to do this year. And then uh, the guy was like, do like four. And I was like, what do you mean do four? Like, it's crazy to really think about it. And it's like really boiling it down to what, at our core, what's our core value proposition as a company? And how would we want to apply, say we had 100 points, like, we, you know, how, many, how much effort, how much bandwidth, how much money do we apply towards these different core you know, value propositions? And so we broke them down into, uh, you know, like, find the most clients and maximize the case values for all of our cases. And these are definitely business stated objectives. And then the the next one was kind of be innovative in the way that we do financial modeling to value, be able to value assets early on in the process was kind of our second bucket bucket. And then we had uh, 
something around kind of management, enabling the team and HR functionality, administration, based growth and sustainability, essentially. And then we had uh, investment in our people. And so then once you look at it in those four categories, you're like, oh, okay. So if we get that general and we say, we want to spend, like right now we're new, there's a lot of disruption. We need to level set. We need to spend a lot of time on what is proving our core model, which is, are we a law firm that can make money? Can we help people? Can we get cases? And can we make money and do it better than anyone else? So that's our core. We need to spend 70, 80% of our time on that. It's like, yes, I like, I am allured to innovation and to disrupting and, do, and, and making robots and predictive modeling, but that's not pragmatic after you weigh, you know, how much bandwidth you have, what are the resources you need? Well, how much impact is there? What risk is there in not doing it? You know, if you don't be profitable and you don't operate effectively, your risk is everything. You know, if you don't have data integrity, if you lose cases and you're referring them out, like you lose everything. So like that becomes paramount and very clear from a top down structure when you break it into these core categories. And we say, OK, we have we want to spend money on consulting and like investing in our team. Well, how much can you spend on them? Well, we know we have to spend 80 percent here. We've got like 20 percent left, like 10, 5, 5, whatever it is, you know, and so and you can do budgets the same way. And then you can layer the rest of your projects or your hypotheses on how you are going to enable that initiative to happen. Uh, and then you can just kind of uh, hierarchy your work down into the execution level of the chunks of work that have to be done. And then those people that are sending 50 letters or doing 50 calls can now very easily say, we do this because that helps drive this case forward. And driving that case forward and maximizing the value helps us be a revenue, revenue positive company. And that is one of our core initiatives. And that's where we're putting 80% of our time. So I need to spend 80% of my time driving this incremental work. So AJ, to close this out, and is Game Changing Attorney Podcast. So I got to ask you, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer means to me, I think I like, a, I think it was Guy Kawasaki's TED Talk that he talks about there are incremental developments in the industry. So when people were had horses and they were getting blocks of ice and they were going to the lake and they were dragging blocks of ice and that's how they sold ice. They shave it off these big blocks of ice. And there were ways you get faster horses and faster sleds and things like that. But the guy that invented the refrigerator changed the game. So when I think about a game-changing attorney, it's not trying to incrementally play the rules better, catch up to somebody that's already leading it. It's what can you do to dynamically change the way you operate, the way you think, the way you approach business, uh, set yourself apart, not by playing the rules, but by changing the rules. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on my interview with Anthony, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when workplace drama expert and New York Times bestselling author Cy Wakeman shares her best strategies for cultivating a high-performing online team and accelerating growth in your organization from the inside. If you walk into someplace, go, you know, I have a firm, I have mediocre results, I spend a lot of my time on people that I don't enjoy being around, and that's my strategic plan for next year as well. Stop lying about it, because what people do is... They complain as if their standards are high and they lead as if their standards are low and you can't have both. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Game Changing Attorney Podcast.